Hi, this is Erica Housekeeper of Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. In southern Vermont, in the town of Whitingham, which is located south of Mount Snow and just north of the Massachusetts border, is the Coarse Farm, an organic dairy that's been in the Coarse family since 1868. Abby Coarse, who grew up on her family's Wyndham County farm, wanted nothing to do with farming, or so she thought. After graduating from St. Michael's College, where she studied journalism, Abby worked for arts organizations in Vermont, Colorado, and Massachusetts. But after a series of events, including a fire at her family's farm in 2007, Abby found herself back in Whitingham helping her parents at the farm and raising her two sons. In a few years, she'll be the one running the farm once her father retires. In this episode, Abby talks about returning to her roots, the importance of dairy farms, and what she loves most about Vermont. Hi, Abby. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope it's feeling a little bit like spring in your neck of the woods today in southern Vermont. Is it nice out down there? It is. It is getting nice. My kids are outside, so that's good. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Hi. Hi. They, I'm thrilled you're here. Thank you so much. And, um, and you're in an area of Vermont that is very near and dear to my heart. I love southern Vermont. And we don't really have flowers blooming too much in up in Burlington, but you probably are a little ahead of us down there in terms of it looking a little bit like spring. It is. I mean, we've still had snow on and off, but we are starting to have daffodil blooms. And I think the forsythia is close. So we're <laughs> fingers crossed. We're, you know, hope is hope springs eternal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now that it's May, at least it's like, okay, we're, we're in the we're in the stretch of, of good things to come. Let's start by, let's talk a little bit about your, your background and, and how you ended up farming. Just so our listeners know, you, you grew up on your family's dairy farm in Whitingham, which is located in Wyndham County down near the Massachusetts border. And you went on to pursue a career in journalism at St. Michael's College up here near Burlington. And then you worked in the arts, um, and now you're back working on the farm where you grew up. You're living down there with your husband. You're raising your two sons who are ages six and nine. Was farming as a career at all on your radar when you were growing up? No, not, not at all. Um, I. It's funny when I think back on it because you know, that's the beauty of growing older, I guess, is that as I reflect on it now, it was incredibly formative in terms of how I grew up and the ways that I think and process information and all sorts of foundational things like that. But I resented it so much when I was a kid and wanted nothing more <laughs> to get away. That was that was my goal was to just get away from here and to never come back. And then you went uh, after going to St. Mike's, you went to work at the Flint Theater in Burlington. And then you were out west at the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado and then at Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. In 2007, there seemed to be this turning point where uh, there was a fire at the farm and can you talk to us about the process that brought you back to the farm to help out your parents, uh, Leon and Linda? Yeah, so I, 
Before the fire, I mean, I I was aware that there was sort of a brewing discontent in my career path choice, if you will. Um, I, I, you know, I was working at these amazing places with amazing people and I loved the idea of everything that I was doing, but the day-to-day existence wasn't, just wasn't quite what I had imagined it would be or what it would feel like. Um, and then this, the fire happened, lightning struck our barn and we were incredibly fortunate. We didn't lose any animals and no one was hurt. Um, but a significant portion of the milking barn did burn down. And, you know, as is the nature of fire, I think there's a, a transformational or a turning point that can happen. And, you know, my parents had to assess whether they rebuilt the barn or not. And so they, we were, my father was amazing about not putting any sort of pressure on us growing up as to whether we came back to the farm or not. He was really uninterested in having kids who were farming because they felt like they should be farming or because they felt like they were supposed to because it was their heritage or, you know, his, he raised us, he and my mom raised us that, you know, he wanted us to be able to tell him at age 30 that we were waking up every day happy with what we were doing. And that was his priority. I know that it took a lot for my parents to come to their kids and ask them anything because they didn't want it to be a pressured thing, you know, or to feel obligatory in any way. But they did feel like they needed to get some sense as to to whether there there was a potential that any of us might want to come back to the farm. And both of my brothers said no. And I couldn't say no. I didn't really know how to say yes, but I but the idea of not being able to like to drive up this road and know that somebody that that it's not about ownership, but just that I that the connection to this land would be lost was something that I didn't really know how to handle. And so I told them that. I didn't know when or what it would look like, but that I couldn't tell them that I wasn't coming back. And I guess, you know, they decided that that was enough to, they both love what they do. And so they decided to rebuild. Did they know how you felt when you were growing up? Like, did they know that you yes. resented farming? They did. <laughs> yes. I, I was raised by a feminist father. <laughs> My opinion was ne- seldom unknown. <laughs> So yes, they were they were very much aware. Um, but my dad liked to mess with people, and there was um, a reporter when I was younger that you know asked him in an interview or something. You know, you have two sons. Do you hope that they'll come back and and maintain the tradition of farming? And he said, Well, I have a daughter too, and my bet's on her. And you know, and I still have that article like in a little drawer somewhere. And I, you know, because I just, it's so funny. And he says, he's like, no, I didn't, I really didn't know that you were coming back or anything. He's like, but I just got really sick of people assuming that because I had sons, they were going to be the ones that were farming. Exactly. 
Were there reasons when you were growing up kind of why? I mean, I, I think most people can relate to it. Like when you're growing up, you can't kind of wait to get out of it, get out of wherever you are and be somewhere else. Did you have any particular reasons why you you didn't like it? I think it was, I mean, the reality of farm life is that it takes everything that you'll give it. You know, work is never done. It's just not. And, you know, especially when you're dealing with a dairy, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a holiday or a soccer game or anything else that, you know, the cows have to be milked and the work has to be done. And, you know, as a kid, I think it's, it's difficult, you know, depending on your personality, obviously, to, to not notice that at least. And I think it just, for whatever reason, affected me a little bit more. And it was just, I didn't, I didn't ever want to feel trapped by the farm the way that I felt like it trapped me as a kid. Um, but, you know, when you grow up, things all of a sudden look very different than they did when you were a kid. It's a funny process. Yeah, it really is. It definitely is. And then in terms of the the timing, when there was the fire at the farm in 07, like, did you kind of gradually come back or was it just like you, you came back kind of to be there all the time or did it kind of happen over a couple of years? I was still working at Mass Mocha and the, I, the farm was two days away from needing to transition the animals into the last year of the organic transition. And so the animals had to start their year of being organic. Um, and so we had to move the cattle to a neighboring farm about 18 miles away. And my mom and dad drove every day for a few months to milk the cows twice a day to maintain that, um, the organic standard. And I was working at Mass Mocha and the farm that they brought the cows to happened to be about 10 minutes away. And so I would go help my dad with the morning milking a certain number of mornings a week before I went to work at Mass Mocha. And then, you know, just different things shifted in our life. We were living in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts at the time. And um, my husband decided that he was going to have an easier time building his business back here where we had more connections and more of a home base. And so we, we shifted back to the area. And then it was about a year later that I came back and started work on the farm. Do you guys live at the farm or do you live nearby? We live about three quarters of a mile down the road from the, from the farm. I live, we, we bought the house that I grew up in. So my kids are, so my kids are growing up in the same house, which is a pretty, which is fun. It's really fun. I bet that's really fun. That's great. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty special. So, and your husband does not work at the farm and he's a builder. No. (laughs) So he's a builder. He doesn't work at the farm and you're raising your sons, um, helping your parents at the farm. Um, As, since your husband is, is not working at the farm and you're the, you know, primary caregiver for your sons. Is it, what kind of challenges does that scenario present? Because you often see kind of family farms, like a couple doing this work. Yeah, I just think it sets up a little bit of a different 
dynamic and I was I was looking into it a little bit I think it's a little crazy about I think it's like 82 percent of farms rely on some off-farm income typically it tends to be the the mother that's the off-farm income and then the father is the farmer not always but again traditionally and so with me being the primary caregiver of my kids and the farmer it's just it's just a very different scenario and it's been a complete learning curve you know for all of us um it took it took some time you know for my dad and I to work out what what that meant for me both as a mother and as a farmer because you know when we were growing up my mom was the farm's bookkeeper so she was able to help my dad but she raised us um and because he worked on the farm you know he was here whereas my husband is just he's just gone um and so there's a it's a different shuffling and um it just it took some time to figure out you know i can't be both the role that my mother was to our you know we as children growing up and the same as my father was to the farm when i was a child growing up because i'm only one person <laughs> and so there's a juggling a, a constant juggling as to what that looks like and it is you know a kind of never-ending challenge. I think any caregiver can sort of attest to the the trickiness of trying to juggle, whether it's elderly parents or kids or um, whatever. You know, it's it's quite something to try to work and be responsible for the well-being of other people. What is your um like? If is it. 60 40 or 80 20 kind of what time how much of the time are you working on the farm and raising your kids um i'm my dad calls me a full-time mother and a part-time farmer depending on the time of year i mean certainly there are some weeks where like if my kids are sick or there's vacation you know i work 10 hours a week on the farm and the rest of the time i have my kids and then there's sometimes in the summer where i work 50 hours a week on the farm um, it's, it's very seasonal, you know, the winters definitely are much more mother intensive and the, the summers are much more farm intensive. Now the coarse dairy farm, it's been in your family since May, 1868. So 152 years, which is really impressive. And at some point, you'll take over the farm after your dad, Leon, retires. So what will that look like for you? It's interesting. My understanding from talking to, well, talking to my dad about his own transition of ownership from his father to him, and then just from other anecdotal conversations with other farmers, I think one of the interesting things in our situation is my my dad my parents are incredible farm managers and the the things that they the style of management and the systems that they've put in place in the last 30 years have made the farm function really really 
well. And my dad has been really thoughtful and strategic in terms of how he's sort of steered the ship of the farm. And he, you know, he always thinks of it as like what each generation brings to bear on the farm. And he thinks that his is that he transitioned the farm to organic. That's, you know, that's his signature or whatever. I sort of see my responsibility to to just to stay the course, if you will. I don't I don't have any massive desire to to change a lot of the way that he manages things or the or the systems that he's set up. I just think I think my job is to continue to honor the land and steward this place the way that my ancestors have and he has. And I hope to potentially bring in more people. You know, the thing about taking over the farm as just one person is that I obviously, I will need more than myself to run the farm that's here. And we have 300 acres of conserved land that we own. And I, I, I think of, of my job as I take over to try to just continue to bring out everything that this land can provide to this community. So I'm intrigued by agroforestry and sort of building in more layers of production that, you know, that increases biodiversity or allows for, you know, I think sometimes about how cool it would be to bring in, you know, if there's somebody, for example, a young farmer, for example, that is having trouble accessing land and I have land and they want to run, you know, a flock of sheep, for example, you know, is there, are there creative ways that I can bring other people in and allow this land to provide for more than just me and this family. We are a part of the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship Program, which is a newer program in the Northeast. We're on our second apprentice. We've graduated one so far. And it's a really, it's like a light in a dark space. You know, the, the future of dairy can seem a little grim. And this apprenticeship program seems really incredible. And I, I really love the idea of this becoming more of a teaching farm as the future moves along because my father is an incredible teacher and I I think it would be really amazing to just build out the capacity for education within the context of this land. Are there a lot of teaching dairy teaching farms or is that kind of something that's sort of new or there there's not a ton of them. There are farm to school programs um and there are burgeoning apprenticeship programs because, of course, the average age of the farmer just gets higher and higher. And dairy is such a capital-intensive field that I think we need to be setting up potential future dairy farmers with apprenticeships, with mentorships. You know, we need to be facilitating the transition of that knowledge from the older generations to the younger generations, because the last thing that you want to do is set a young farmer onto a path that's incredibly capital intensive without them having the right 
not even just the right understanding of what they're doing, but to know, to have some certainty that they want to be doing that. And I think that this, the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship Program provides like a really great window into grazing provides a really low, it's the lowest cost startup for dairy as the lowest um, cost barrier. And it's a systems approach. And I just think there's a lot in that that could potentially set a next generation of grazers up for success versus, you know, further leveraging and um, economic downturn. Right. That sounds like a good, a good plan. You know, and you see the, you read it a lot in the, the media, you know, you see a lot of the number of Vermont dairy farms going down. I think now it's at 677 and it was, that's down from about 1100 in 2010. When you hear about the stories of the struggles that dairy farms are experiencing with milk prices or being over leveraged or, you know, maybe not having a succession plan or someone to take over. You know, it's interesting too, because on social media, if you know, if you spend any time on Facebook or Instagram, you always, I notice, and I'm, I'm sure you notice, <laughs> dairy farming, you know, isn't quite as hip as say veggie farming or flower farming or, or hemp farming. And I'm just curious, you know, how does that feel to you? I mean, does it, does it bother you that dairy farms don't get the kind of love that other farms do on social media or even, you know, generally in the media when, when you hear about dairy, it's always like, oh, you know, there's trouble ahead. You know, what, what's your take on all of that? So it doesn't, it doesn't feel awesome. <laughs> and it's, but it's, it's complicated. Like I, I understand, I think, I think food choice is important, right? And so there are certainly a lot of people who want to choose to not consume dairy and, you know, they have the right to choose that. But I also think that that simply focusing on dairy as, as a food group sort of misses some of the point, especially in a place like Vermont. Um, and I hope it has like the numbers, right. But it's dairy farms are still contributing about 70% of Vermont's agricultural sales which makes us the number one state in the U.S. in its dependency on one commodity, which is a little crazy when you think about it. And dairy essentially built Vermont's agricultural railroad, if you will. You know, so many of the things that our agricultural economy relies on, so feed stores, machine stores, technical services, infrastructure, things like that, dairy is what's upholding, has created and is upholding so much of that infrastructure that makes the entire agricultural economy in Vermont run. And so to, to not think about the entirety of the picture seems to really be missing the point of what we lose in a place like Vermont when dairy takes a downturn. And then in addition, it's like a farm like mine provides so much of that idyllic pastoral image, you know, that brings so many people to Vermont. I mean, cows on grass is 
that's like the, that's that's the Ben and Jerry's um you know that's their entire marketing scheme and and it still remains that 80% of Vermont's open lands are managed by dairy farmers and so we we all have should have you know have a stake in holding up the well-being of of that part of our cultural history and and even further you know we're in this uncertain time of climate change and thinking about climate resilience and what we want the world to be like and these a, a grazing dairy like mine has immense benefits to the ecosystem and the reality is, is part of why Vermont evolved as a dairy state is because we don't have great soils. You know, our topography is hilly and rocky and our soils aren't amazing. And the, the ma kind of magical thing that cows can do and sheep and goats is they wander around and they, they convert grass into nutritious food. They can exist and thrive and provide omega-3 rich milk, you know, tasty, delicious stuff in places where, you know, it's not super easy to grow carrots <laughs> because, because they end up in crazy shapes because they hit so many rocks on the way down. And they build, you know, like on a farm like ours, our, orga our organic matter is like five to six percent. We're managing 300 acres of permanent sod. So that's, and that's what a lot of your grazing dairies are doing is you're building topsoil, you're building organic matter, you're building in climate resilience. And that matters. And I think as one of those farmers, it's, I adore my local farmers of, of all stripes, but I think we're all important. And there's in the, because the community supported agriculture model requires a more direct marketing approach. And there is such a, a direct consumer engagement piece. It's easy for dairy to sort of flip through the cracks in terms of how we as consumers perceive its importance for something aside from just food. So I think, I think too, it's important to bring up the fact that it's, that it is an absolute privilege to be able to be on the land that's, that's been in my family for so long that my family is, I don't think of it as owned, but stewarded, you know, I don't, you know, it's a privilege to be able to be on land. And I think particularly in the context of everything that we are seeing in the dairy industry and, you know, so much of why I wanted to bring on apprentices and why I think about education in the context of this farm is because of, of the, the heartache and the despair that does exist in so much of the dairy farming community. Um, you know, these are, these are people who are losing, losing their roots, losing their connection to land, losing their connection to um, an entire way of life that's potentially defined their family for, for generations. And because of the way that we 
tend to talk about dairy right now, they sort of flip out of existence with nothing said about it. And I do think that's, that's tragic. And it's such a loss to our state that we don't understand what we're, what we're losing when, when those former giants of, of, of industry and knowledge go under, you know, there's a, if you've ever talked to an older farmer, there's just, there's something there that's different. Farmers are, there. there's a different way of understanding the world. And particularly with an older farmer, you know, a person who's worked land for years and years and years and given their whole life to that, there's just a different way of approaching the world. And I think that we have really lost something when we don't, when we just let that fall by the wayside without trying to understand what we're losing when it goes. Does your dad talk about that a lot? I mean, would you, would you put your dad in that category of kind of an older farmer? Yeah, I would. I mean, he, he just thinks about things and and because of being raised in a farming family, he has so much in his head that I feel like he has such an oral history. You know, he, he has like not just the, the stories to go along with when his grandparents were in the Great Depression, but, but he's still on the land that they were on when the, when the Great Depression happened. And so like there's a, there's just a, a groundedness in that and a humility in that that I think is not easy to come by. And, and yeah, so it just, it just seemed really, it seemed really sad to me that, for example, it would just be me that benefited from his years of of wisdom and knowledge. And, and I think that that applies across the board, you know, that we should be at some point we lost um, culturally our ability to understand small farmers as, as experts, as, as people who were working in a discipline that was, that was specialized just like anything else, you know, and they were sort of relegated to this second-class citizenry. And I think that it would really behoove us as a society to, or as a state, you know, I can really only speak to Vermont's farming traditions. I don't know them anywhere else well. But I think it would really behoove us to, to think a little bit broader about what we're losing as these farms go under. Mm. Yeah, it definitely does make a lot of sense. It's a good point. You said you have 300 acres at the farm? We do, yes. What's the setting like? Um, you know, you have animals and uh, what kind of animals do you have? What's, uh, what are, you know, do you have beautiful views? I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful. I wish I could be there right now. <laughs> I'd love for you to paint me a picture. I will, I will confess it's quite idyllic. We're at 2,000 feet, which is really <laughs> quite high. 
that's the other sort of interesting thing about a farm like ours. On paper, it's not what they would call a viable farm for our soils. And yet we've been here for 150 years. So it seems like, and we're till, still technically a profitable farm. So there's some magic happening here, I think. And so from my house where I am right now, I can see the mountains over in Florida, Massachusetts. So it's, you know, 100 mile view from my house and I can see the lake and it's stunning. It's still really wooded. I mean, we've cleared, we have about 70 acres of pasture, but like I said, I'm I'm really interested in agroforestry and we've maintained as much of the the trees for shades and along the rock walls and things like that as we can. So it's 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 pretty picture perfect as far as what you would expect from a Vermont hill farm. That's nice. And I I really love southern Vermont. I grew up about an hour from you from Whitingham. I grew up in the town of Manchester and I actually grew up right next to a dairy farm, the Wilcox farm. Um, our land had kind of abutted theirs. Um, so I remember spending a lot of time there as a kid. But um, I also remember I couldn't wait to leave when I was growing up. You know, I couldn't wait to get out of Manchester and to get out of Vermont and go somewhere totally different. And um, now all these years later, I feel the total opposite. I don't really want to be anywhere else. And, um, and if I could live in Southern Vermont, I, I would. My mom is still down there. So I, I, I get to visit a decent amount. But I'd love to hear from you about what you love most about Whitingham and, and just the surrounding area in Southern Vermont. Well, it's funny because if I really examine it and I look back, I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't travel extensively, but I did travel abroad uh, some. And I have traveled a, a good amount around the country. And as much as I claimed that I never wanted to come back here, I always, I wasn't ever one of those people that dreaded coming back from wherever I was. I appreciated being there. I loved being there and I could settle into being there. And then when it was time to come home, I was sort of like, okay, <laughs> which I think just sort of speaks to, I mean, When your family has been on the same land for a long time, um, and I always think about this sadly in the indigenous context because I can't quite imagine the the trauma that must come with not being in connection with your ancestral lands. But I, I'm just I just love this land. I don't it it completes me. I, that sounds so trite in a way, but but it really does. I don't feel, I don't feel completely myself when I don't live here. This, there's something about being here that allows me to be fully myself. And this, this area is, is, it's sweet. You know, there's, it's very rural and yet, you know, you can get to Boston in three hours. You can get to New York city in four hours. You can get to Burlington in three hours. Um, Brattleboro is a great little place and there's just, it attracts, there's great people here and the, the potential for just really beautiful community. And I think that, um, especially when you're thinking about 
where to raise a family, those things start to to matter more to you than some of the other things that you think matter when you're younger. I, you know, we decided we wanted to raise our kids in the same place that that we grew up, that, you know, where they would know what dirt was and that you could grow vegetables in it and that cows could wander around on grass and all these things that, again, you don't think much of when you're little, but when you're thinking about raising your own kids, it it really hits home that those were the things that really shaped who you were. Right. Did your husband grow up in Weddingham? He did. He did. So you've known him he a did. long time. I have. We we went to school together. We were three years apart. We actually graduated valedictorian three years apart. He's three years older than I. Um, And both went to Burlington for college and both lived in Colorado for a little while and then ended up kind of back in the same place. That's nice. That's nice to have those roots, both of you. It is. It is. It's, It's special. Are there some favorite places in Vermont that you really love to visit? I I mean I love Burlington. I really do. I I lived on Clark Street when I worked at the Flynn right at the top of Church Street and I still just it's the only other place. My grandparents uh lived in South Burlington and so I spent a lot of time in Burlington when I was a, throughout my entire childhood and then going to college at St. Mike's and so it's it's really the only other place that I feel at home and sort of anytime I end up there, I'm sort of like, Oh, (laughs) why did I, why did I leave? You know, it's, it's a pretty magical place also that I, that I genuinely love. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, I, I like, uh, Burlington too. We lived in my husband, we met in Boston and I wanted to, he's from Massachusetts. And, um, I said, when we decided to move to Vermont, Burlington was kind of a good place for us because it wasn't too rural and it's a it's a it still has kind of a small town feel in a lot of ways and it's just there's always a lot going on so it does it does it has like just the right mix of of all the things and I think that that's part of what makes we because we both went to school up in Burlington and loved it and I think that's part of what makes it okay down here in Southern Vermont too, is Brattleboro is quite a lot like Burlington. It's just smaller. And and Northampton is not dissimilar either, although it's not in Vermont. But so I think, you know, we've, you're able to keep, it's not so rural here that you can't get to a place that feels at least a little bit like Burlington, which helps. Last question for you. Can you just talk about, I mean, you've been back in Vermont for a while. Can you just tell us why you're glad to to be here in Vermont? It's home. (laughs) I mean, that sounds so simple, but it's true. And I'm, I really am. There are so many things that could probably be so much better. And yet I can't imagine raising my kids anywhere else. I really can't. And, um, and, you know, I think that really often and any time that they're out and about and just playing around and able to be kids, I guess, I, I really, that, that really hits home for me, how thankful I am that we've chosen to be, to be here. Yeah. And for them to grow up, 
you know, those roots kind of carry on, like they're growing up where you grew up and it is really special and they, they do get to be kids and, and it, it, um, I agree completely. Yeah. And I think, I think healthy roots, I mean, you know, I'm an organic farmer, so roots, roots really matter in terms of my worldview and how I think about the strength of something. So I think it's really formative when kids can grow up with, with, with strong roots. And I'm, I'm happy that mine are growing up here in Vermont. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Abby as much as I did. You can learn more about The Course Farm at thecoursefarmdairy.com. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Send me comments, story ideas, or feedback at hello at happyvermont.com. You can also learn more by visiting my website at happyvermont.com. Take care and talk to you soon.